You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Welcome back to The Way Home Podcast, my friends. I'm so glad to have you with us today. Uh, We're doing a special series of podcasts that coincide with the release of my book, Away With Words. Uh, using your online conversations for good. I'd encourage you to go to awaywithwordsbook.com. Check out everything about the book. If you pre-order today, before the release of the book in August, from your favorite retailer, and then come back to the website, there's a bunch of goodies that we would like to send to you, a bunch of bonuses, including a free booklet called The Social Media Survival Guide and many other things. We'd love for you to be part of this. So check out that book. Check out the website, awaywithwordsbook.com. I wanted to have on today one of the people that I was honored to have the endorsement of for Away With Words, Tim Challies. And chances are, if you're listening to this, you have read Tim Challies' blog, challies.com. Tim is someone that I jokingly say kind of invented the internet. If not, he's definitely the godfather of the Christian internet, if you will. Tim has been blogging for a long time. Before it was cool, when there's only a few people online, he's blogged every day for years and years. He's on a Cal Ripken-like streak. That's just amazing. But more importantly, Tim is a local church pastor. He's plugged in. He produces really solid, important theological content. I talked to Tim about how the internet has changed, about Christians and the way they converse online and sometimes are nasty to each other. I ask him about discernment and discernment blogs and are they helpful? Are they hurtful? Why are Christians so tempted to lie and smear each other online? All these really important things. I think you'll find a lot of help here in this podcast. So let's join my friend Tim Challies on the Way Home Podcast. I want to welcome uh, my friend Tim Challies uh, to the Way Home Podcast. Tim, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Tim, there's a whole lot of things I'd like to talk to you about when it comes to the internet, communication, all these sorts of things. But first of all, I, I just have to say, I joke about this, but I think it's pretty close to being true. I feel like you invented the internet. Is that true? Can I confirm that? You cannot confirm that I invented the internet, no. Oh, okay. But I am an enthusiast. You are an enthusiast. Tim, you were one of the first people I started reading when the internet became a thing. Like I was reading, you know, your stuff every day and a la carte links. I guess my first thought is when you first started doing that years ago, did you have any idea how big of a thing, not just what you were doing would become, but also just kind of how it would explode in this way. No, not at all. When I started blogging, blogging was just a new thing. And it's like so many other things like podcasting, right? It's still in, it, it, at that time was still in the early days as podcasting now is in the early days. And you just don't know how it's going to develop over time. And a lot of these things take off and a lot of these things fizzle out. So yeah, I, I had no, no sense of it. And really, I wasn't even really trying to blog so much. I was just trying to write updates for my family. So challeys.com is my website because that's the family name and I was writing for my family. It was supposed to be like a, a hub for challeys scattered around the world. I didn't really intend it to become what it's become. So yeah, it developed very organically as things tend to do on the internet. You know, it's interesting how things have evolved in some ways. I mean, there was kind of that era where blogs were such a thing, right? Where 
you know, blogs were kind of the way for people to elevate their voices, kind of get noticed. I remember when I first started writing, you know, you, if you wanted to get published in a magazine, really magazines were the place you you wanted to get published. I mean, if you wanted to sort of advance your career in that way. So you had to send a self-addressed stamped envelope, right, to Moody Monthly or Discipleship Journal or the magazines that Christianity Today was putting out or Table Talk Magazine or all these, all these places. And obviously, you know, blogs kind of took that space, although there still are good magazines and journals being published. And then it seemed like for a while blogging, I don't say it went away, but it, it kind of morphed in a new direction where you have organizational blogs, Twitter kind of took away some of that life. But it seems like blogs are almost making a comeback. So maybe talk about kind of the the way these things have evolved. Yeah. So when blogs showed up on the scene, you've got to remember they were social media. There was nothing else. This was pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook, pre-Instagram, pre-YouTube, all that. Blogs were out of the gate first as a form of social media. So when people started blogging, there was a community of bloggers who related through their blogs. So there was a very social aspect to it. And that was part of the joy of it. Uh, People like Joe Carter and I, we both had these small blogs. We would communicate back and forth. We would uh, write about each other's ideas. And so there's a sense of community among Christian bloggers uh, and I guess bloggers in any particular uh, area of, of interest. Once social media came along, then everything changed. And then people had another place to communicate. So you didn't have to put your articles on a blog. If you had something to say in an article, you could put it on Facebook. Or eventually you could chop it up into a ridiculous string of messages on Twitter or something. So um, I think in some ways, social media, other social media platforms replaced part of of what, what blogs had done. But it also displaced. So a lot of people would not start a blog because they just stuck with social media. So certainly it was it, everything changed um, when there were more social media platforms, easier ones. You didn't have to keep tabs on your own blog. You didn't have to do your own design, all of that. So, um, so I think we're now into the second era of blogging in a sense where it's um, you now blog on your site. Then you get the word out through social media. So the two now go together. Uh, in this way, um, social media being the the means of broadcasting the information about what you've written. And the same would largely be true of podcasting. Uh, you, you create your podcast, but then you broadcast news of your podcast through these other social media channels. Yeah, I remember I used to you know use Google Reader and then Feedly for a while where you sort of had those RSS feeds where your blogs are sending you stuff every day. But of course, you know, social media has replaced that. Uh, let me just jump back to something you said before about you used to have to submit things to magazines, and that was how you broke into the writing world. If you wanted to have a book contract, you first needed to prove that you could write, and usually you would then submit things to magazines. And that was a that was a model for many years. Um, it isn't really anymore. I think magazines now tend to take information or tend to accept articles not unsolicited as much as from people who. Uh, already have a voice, already have a platform. And that's probably just because there are fewer magazines they can choose to be picky. Few have survived the rise of the digital. So blogs became the minor leagues. They became the place where you could write, where you could gain a voice, you could prove that people would read, and then publishers expected before you would write a book now, they didn't care if you'd written for magazines so much. They wanted to know how many people read your site, how many social media followers do you have, Publishers are risk averse. 
they want to, to hedge their bets as much as possible, and who can blame them? It's a tough industry, and so they want you to bring readers, guaranteed readers, who will have a good chance of buying your book. So the blog did function and still does function in that way. Meanwhile, we had all these new blogs come along, which weren't really blogs, but something sort of between blogs and magazines like Gospel Coalition or Desiring God or others, where people can submit things to it. They run them. They run these unsolicited articles, and that's another way you can sort of gain a voice within your preferred industry. Yeah, and in some ways, you know, I've gone back and forth on that, in some ways lamenting the decline of like personal blogs is a way for people to kind of get their legs under them and figure out how to write before they go to the big leagues. On the other hand, you know, the kind of hybrid model where it's it's not a print magazine, but it's not a personal blog, like like you said, Desiring God, Gospel Coalition, even Christianity Today in a certain sense and other places that still have print, but they most of their stuff's online. In some ways, it 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 does allow for more vetting, more editing, a more polished end product, right? And maybe a little bit more authority. Right. So you feel like in sense if they're publishing, it must be OK. I mean, there's been pros and cons with that, it seems like. Yeah. So blogs, the joy of blogging is that you don't have a gatekeeper who's telling you, yes, you can publish this or no, you cannot publish this. But the drawback or the horror of blogging is that you don't have a gatekeeper who's telling you, yes, you should publish this or no, you should not. So usually at any technology, you find that the, they're well, there's always strengths and weaknesses, and usually you find those strengths and weaknesses are very closely related to one another. And in blogging, uh, you, you can say whatever you want, and that's good because I don't think we want everything behind gatekeepers. We don't want there to be people who are saying, no, you may not address this issue whatsoever, and there's very few gatekeepers who kind of then decide what will be spoken about and what will not. The, the joy of social media, the joy of the digital world, is that the little people, so to speak, have a voice. But the little people having a voice has also caused all kinds of problems. And so th- there's benefits and there's drawbacks in both ways. Yeah, I, I think there are. And it, it, it's an interesting time we're in. Uh, you, you have blogged how many consecutive days and years? It's it's like a baseball fans will understand that. It's like a Cal Ripken-like streak that you have going on. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like 6,000 consecutive days or wow. something silly like well, you know that you know that quote you've probably heard about, I'm not afraid of failing, I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't really matter. I, I sometimes wonder if uh, if that applies to blogging 6,000 days in a row, because it really is succeeding at something that doesn't matter a whole lot. So anyways, carry on. Well, I, th- I think it does matter. I think it, you've been a, a great voice in the, in the church, really. I mean, on the one hand, with your, your content and your helping us think through a lot of things theologically, but also you're able to elevate other voices and other good theologically robust resources that people can have for the church. I'm curious for you, your writing practice, if you're writing every day, blogging every day, what is your practice like? Are you someone that you're very regimented where you get up at a certain time and you like have to crank out a certain amount of words? Do you kind of write when you have an idea? Like, How do you organize yourself in a way that you're able to produce this much content? Sure. So I should say I don't actually write every single day. I post something every single day or use the magic of automation to post something every day. So I do take time off. I do take weeks off. I do take Sundays off, etc. So the, the posting is regimented, not the writing. Uh, in terms of a schedule, my I have my ideal schedule, but then I also have my realistic schedule. Um, ideally, I get up early and just have a couple cups of coffee, do my devotions, and then get going, get writing. I think like a lot of writers, I'm at my peak for maybe about two hours a day to three hours a day, and then it's diminishing returns. So 
I really tried to identify when I'm at my mental creative peak, do my main writing then, and then devote the rest of the day to editing or to follow-ups or to emails or to administration or whatever it is. That's the ideal. The reality is I have a wife and children. I do a lot of travel, or I used to do a lot of travel anyways. And so there's a way life sort of interferes with your, your ideal schedule. Though, uh, we, we've been involved in this long lockdown, and all my speaking engagements for the year have been canceled and so on. So I've really been revisiting what does my ideal writing schedule look like, and are there ways, there's no school schedule, so the kids aren't up early, etc. So are there ways I can get into a more rigid schedule now? Um, in a way I haven't been able to, and life has a little bit, been a little bit more disrupted. It's It's been interesting. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, I, I was basically in my house for like almost two months, you know, a couple times going to the store and things like that. It's interesting. You'd think I'd have more time to get things done, but writing in the midst of a kind of a tumultuous time in the world is, is harder than I thought. I don't know if you found that too. Yeah, for sure. When, okay, so I'm an introverted writer. So when I hear, and we started getting this messaging, like we're probably going to end up in a long lockdown. To me, there's part of me that, that, I mean, that sounds like the ideal situation for a writer. I should be able to thrive in this environment. The reality has been very different. And I think what I didn't account for was just the sheer weightiness of the situation. And there was a level of uncertainty, a level of fear, um, but also just a level of everything being disrupted and then nothing being sure. When is this going to end? What's the reality behind this? You can go on Facebook and everybody's saying something different about it. You find an article saying this, you'll find an article saying the opposite. So I think we're all just carrying this very heavy, emotional, spiritual, mental load. And I feel like we're, I'm getting better at it now, that uh, even though there still isn't much certainty and still nobody can agree on what's actually happening. But I think it's just taken a long, long time to adapt to, to life in lockdown. Mm. Yeah, it has. You wrote a book several years ago on kind of the technology and the internet and sort of screens and mediums and all this stuff that was just really helpful for me as I was thinking through this. And and it seemed like it was really ahead of its time. And now obviously there's a lot of conversation, not just among Christians, but among, you know, a wide variety of experts and people talking about kind of the way we use screens and what, what if impact they have on them and technology, people talking about artificial intelligence and all these things in a way that I think you were talking about well before this. I guess my question is, as you think about, I mean, there's really two tracks here. There's pre-COVID where we were, there was a lot of just, you know, it seems like the people's view of technology has had kind of shifted and and into thinking that, you know, maybe actually this is not all great for us and we need to sort of be more discerning in how we how we use technology and what we do. Obviously, COVID has shifted that a little bit back, saying, hey, this has helped us kind of run our lives. But I guess from where we are today, are you, are you reflecting at all on, on that book that you wrote and kind of how ahead of its time it was or and, and some of the conversations <laughs> we're having? Yeah, somewhat. So I think the book was ahead of its time in that it was one of the first in the Christian space to deal with these issues. It was behind the times that it largely drew on Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman and people like that who had written in a different era. Postman at the end of his life was approaching the digital age and uh, starting to write about it and technopoly and things like that. But they were largely a pre-digital world. So I was trying to take some of their ideas and uh, integrate it into a, a digital world. And yeah, certainly the, the COVID situation, the lockdowns has changed a lot. I could find a lot of churches that were adamantly opposed and had great theological arguments, true, like grounded in scripture, theological arguments 
for why they would never do streaming who within three days got cameras and got set up and started streaming their services. So and they had very good reasons to do it, and they didn't change their theology. They just realized in God's providence, this is a way we can use technology to bring something like church fellowship to our, our church. And um, so, yeah, I, I think we've seen through this this lockdown, through the situation, we've seen the joys of technology. We've seen the benefits. We're all very thankful that we haven't just had to go silent for, I mean, we're 12 weeks in my church. We're 12 weeks into into this now, 12 weeks since we've been together. We're very thankful we can do these services online. On the other hand, none of us want to keep this up. Like we're seeing, we do not want to continue these these online services. We're desperate to see one another, to be together again. So we see the strengths and weaknesses, the benefits and the drawbacks uh, of technology right in the situation. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, and really in my book, I explored this a lot and I quote some of what you've said. I want to talk about the conversations that Christians have together online. It's part of the reason I really wanted to, to work on uh, Away With Words that you know, it seems like there's kind of a Christians at times can feel like if we're online and we're we're advocating for a cause or or a doctrine or something that we believe is true, it doesn't really necessarily matter how we speak. You know that the, the way we speak to each other is is not as important as that we're speaking the right things. The separation we have instead of being face to face, but mediated through screens has us be much more uncivil and, and, and nasty in the way we engage. Maybe to kind of speak to that dynamic, you have been doing digital ministry for a long time, so you've seen it all. Uh, how, how are you thinking about kind of the way Christians choose to engage these days online? Yeah, I'd say I'm, I'm sorry that Christians are not doing better. I don't think Christians are modeling um, respectful God-glorifying engagement online. And I really wish I could say that we were. I wish I could look at the ways Christians are discussing difficult issues and say, we're modeling something to the world. Um, I had somebody get in touch with me just a, a very short time ago who said something like, you're, you're, you're nice online, but this is not the era for love. This is the era for truth. We need to let truth stand out in an era like this. Um, which is taking a biblical paradigm of speaking truth with love and tearing it in half and saying, right now, truth is so important, we can't afford to do it in love, uh, which is which is absurd. We can never tear the Bible apart that way. We can, we can never uh, take one side of a paradigm and not the other. And so in, in a context like this, um, and everything's divisive now, right? It, you, every situation, it seems, is just ripe for people to, to sling mud at one another. I, I wish Christians were just saying, we are going to do better. We're going to discuss this with respect. We're going to believe the best about one another. We're going to hope all things. We're going to give others the benefit of the doubt. We're going to model before this angry, uncertain world a way of communicating that is so much better, so so far superior. But we're just not seeing that. And I, I had some early experience with this where I'd written some articles um, and, you know, I, I really believed in the content of what I wrote. And I think what I wrote was, objectively correct but I was it was after a conference I was walking through the airport and I I came across the person I had written about and had this sense this deep sense of shame and failure that I had spoken about this person in a way that he was not human so I I had seen him as just a an ethereal online nothing kind of being and seeing him in flesh and blood just just stopped me short this is a person created in the image of God loved by God doing his utmost to serve God. Who am I to treat him as anything less than a, a child of the king? Yeah, I'm glad you said that because, you know, it 
hearing it come from you, think carry some weight because I think, you know, I think especially early in your ministry, people look to you, I think rightly for helping us discern, you know, good theology and and be wary of false teaching. Talk about this in the book, but you know, there is a need for Christians to, to have discernment, to separate good teaching from false teaching. And so you have helped us with that in many ways. And yet it seems like there's a category of discernment or what passes as discernment that really seems a little bit less like what you see in scripture when, you know, when Paul is talking to Timothy and he's urging discernment, but then he's urging all the fruits of the spirit and gentleness and and the way to shepherd people. There, it seems like there's a category of what passes for discernment that is almost more like tabloid gossip, right? Like, like who's the latest person to do this or what's the latest outrage here? And you yourself have been a victim of some of that stuff that, that was really nasty. You've written about that. So maybe help us think through the difference between those two things. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's hard to know sometimes which one you're experiencing. And maybe it's seen generally more so in the, in the broad picture. Is this person's ministry, if you call it that, or is this person's YouTube channel or this person's blog, is it generally meant to build people up or to tear people down? And you can see there's there's whole categories of blogs, of, of websites, and they're just meant to tear people down. They they never focus on what's positive. They never affirm people, uh, or very rarely, they just exist to... Um, they, these are people who go looking for flaws. They'll go scouring the internet, looking for anything they can use against people. They'll dig up the most obscure, arcane, old school references and, and hold those against people. So there's a whole industry of that. And, you know, I don't even care. Go ahead and do that. What bothers me is that Christians read this stuff. I, I wish Christians could have the discernment to realize that we, we shouldn't be involved in that. Gossip is a two-way street. You, it's a sin to, to gossip about other people. It's also a sin to receive that gossip. As soon as you know somebody's gossiping, you're supposed to cut that off. You're supposed to stop it. It's, it's sinful to have your opinion of another person changed through gossip, through malice. And so um, I think we've got to really accept the personal responsibility here. I should not be reading. I should not be watching. I should not be listening to that kind of material. If it's, again, changing my view of somebody Jesus died for, God loves, God set his His love on from before the beginning of time, and I'm just allowing these people who I don't know, I don't know anything about them, they appear not to be under authority, uh, they're a law unto themselves. How could I possibly have my opinion of that person changed by, by someone like that? And it, it seems like one of the things that saddens me is that there's so much of, of that kind of really attack. I mean, I think Sometimes we're hesitant to call some of these folks what they're doing sin, but it does really seem like it's sinful. Like I think sometimes we think, well, that, that person just kind of goes too far. But really, there's a going too far online that really is sin against brothers and sisters in Christ, is it not? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think some people are afraid to call it out because they just don't want to be under the gun. They don't want to, those people to then turn on them with all their their gossip and all their malice. Um, the other thing is, I think in the Christian world, even the, the subculture of the Christian world that you and I inhabit, I think there's tons of gossip. So it's really hard to call out gossip in someone else when I myself am involved in gossip. And um, I'm sure you've been in many green rooms as I have and uh, just been at many many meals with people. And it's you just hear people gossip. We talk about one another and we're not doing that, I think, often in, in ways that build up rather than tear down. 
So I think this is an issue across the Christian world, or at least across our little subsection of the Christian world, that we have got to address. We we need to stop talking ill of one another. We we affirm the importance of spiritual discernment, and I appreciate that. We love sound doctrine, and we shy away from people who teach false doctrine. But man, we are ruthless with one another. Yeah, we are. And there is a need for good discernment. I, I think the opposite reaction to this is that any kind of public critique of public teaching is wrong too. I I think back years ago, the whole Rob Bell critique of love wins, which turns out to be heterodox in every way. And he's just gone further down that path that any kind of even loving, gentle rebuke was kind of seen as you're being mean and how dare you do this. It does seem that we also need to be wary of false teaching and, and be on guard. How can Christians do that and do that well? Yeah, absolutely. We need to be on guard against false teaching. And um, there, there was a little period in the Christian world, and I think it slowed a little bit, where there's just something new every few months or every few years. And there were just a lot of people kind of n- negotiating these new ideas or throwing these new ideas out there. There was a period where there was a new big book every year or so. And, you know, the heaven tourism genre, or it was uh, Jesus Calling, or it was those sorts of things. It was Love Wins and all these others. So I think there was a time when Christians, even within the, the kind of reformedish space, were being challenged on some of these. I, I think it's been a while since we've had any of those books that's really impacted, uh, again, that little subsection of the Christian world we're a part of. But that certainly doesn't mean we can relax our guard, and it certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't be pursuing the truth and just a full-out pursuit of what is true. But again, we've got to ensure we're pursuing our truth with love. We can't sever the two. We can never pursue truth in an unloving way or pursue truth at the expense of uh, people that, that God loves. So there is time to to rebuke. There is time to call out sin. And we see that modeled clearly in, in Scripture. As you mentioned earlier with Paul, the Apostle Paul, he would um, call out Peter on his false doctrine, and, and well, he should have. That was the gospel is at stake. But we've got to be very careful. We're not calling out people on small little flaws and foibles rather than big ones. And we, we've got to be careful. We're bringing a, a, the right amount of weight. And there's a whole lot that I think should be done um, behind closed doors, or at least personally, before we go public with it. And no, I don't think Matthew 18 pertains to what I write in a book or to what I put in a YouTube video. But if I have a personal relationship with someone and can approach him, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I want to grant him that dignity? Yeah, that's that's good. Let me ask you this, just a follow up to that. How do we know, you know, if there is public false teaching that our people are susceptible to being held captive by? How do we know, A, what's what's the best way to write about it, to approach that, number one? Number two, how do we know if we're the person to do that, right? Because sometimes I think this is really important. I think someone needs to speak out on it, but am I the person to do it at this moment? You know, so how how do we weigh all that? Yeah, that's a great question. And one thing the internet has done is it's democratized authority, you could say, or something along those lines where um, the people with the loudest voice are the people who have the most authority, not the people who have the, the expertise. And I mean, we've seen that through this COVID-19 thing, right, where um, epidemiologists might be saying one thing, but this person has a million Facebook followers and really speaks louder now than the epidemiologist. So, you know, we I think we have a real distrust toward authority and, and toward 
experience or expertise. So uh, I do think we need to allow ourselves to rebound there a little bit and to ask, am I the one? Do I have expertise in this area? Therefore, should I be the one to speak about it? Or do I just have a big platform? Do I have a, just have a big following? And so I can say something ignorant and then my people will echo it and maybe we can win just by the, the strength, the loudness of our voice. So I, I'm really hoping we can trust the expertise of people who have committed themselves to these things. And another thing I've been saying for a while now is we just have to realize that some of these theological issues are not solved in a day. They're not solved in a week. They take some time. And we have to be willing to be patient. We, we're so used to things happening instantly in this online world. But you see the development of doctrines. If you look back historically through historical theology, you see some doctrines took a very long time to develop. And this, we should expect the same will be true here. Meanwhile, we've got social media that, that um, really confuses things. You, uh, it's so hard to have good discussions on Twitter, yet that's where so many of the discussions are happening. It's just not the medium for that. So yeah, just a bunch of thoughts there. Yeah. I think that's really good. And and I th do think it seems like social media has, you know, and this is where I want to pivot into a couple more questions before I let you go. But like you said, it's democratized things to where everyone feels like they have a voice or should have a voice. So everybody, you know, every young seminarian is the, is Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, and they're going to call out all the false teaching and all the bad stuff. Every young activist is William Wilberforce, and they're going to take on the powers that be every, you know, it doesn't seem like they're, you know, social media is flattened things to, to the point where there's not a kind of maturing process in, in our, in what we do online. I want to talk about writing. So if someone's listening and they want to be a writer, they want to get published, they look at Tim Challies and they're like, I would like to do some of what Tim does. What's some advice you give to people uh, to get started and get going? Yeah, so I think the blog is fear. Blogs are still a great place to begin. You can start a blog and you can just start writing. I would typically encourage people to write maybe 10 solid articles before you even tell anybody about your site and then write another 10 and tell some friends and have them start to give you feedback. Maybe talk to somebody in your life, uh, a pastor, elder, someone along those lines and say, do I have authority or am I the kind of person who can perhaps gain a little bit of influence over others and not botch it? Are there things you'd want me to, to work on before I could have that kind of voice? So put yourself under authority. And then maybe write another 10 articles and then start to broadcast it to the public. So I think just sort of taking the incremental approach like that to find your voice and just to be so careful that just because you have a voice doesn't mean you actually know anything or should use that voice. There's just way too many people speaking ignorantly out there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's okay. You don't have to know everything and, and you can have opinions and, and all that. But just be careful and just be very respectful toward others. You have to kind of gain an assessment of how little you know. That, that's very healthy for all of us to, to not think we're experts in everything, but to, to realize there's tons of things I don't know, tons of things I never will know, lots of things I just can't speak to, shouldn't speak to, because uh, I just don't have the knowledge to do it well. The last thing I want to ask you about this great project on Christian history that you've been working on. Tell us a little bit about that. What intrigued you about starting it? And what tell us a little bit about how it can benefit Christians and families and churches? Yeah. So a few years ago, I just started thinking about objects of all things and historical objects and thinking it would be fun to tell the history of Christianity through historical objects. So find objects that, that represent something, objects that tell a story beyond themselves. And 
uh, eventually found myself actually able to carry out this project where I could travel the world and go looking for historical objects and then use those objects to tell the story of the Christian faith. And that became a book and a DVD series, a documentary series called Epic. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it follows me around the world as I find these objects and then try and tell the stories he brought up Wilberforce before. And so I go to Wilberforce's home, and I find uh, this model ship that he used, that he would take place to place to just show the, the inhumane, barbaric conditions of the slaves as they were carried from Africa to North America, and, and just showing that this was a prop he used to actually undermine the slave trade and bring about abolition in the UK. You're talking about Martin Luther in Germany. I found one of those um, indulgence boxes that where people would put their money when you heard that little rhyme from Tetzel. Um, about when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Well, here's the coffer. Here's one of those uh, indulgence boxes. People put their money in, and you would be given this indulgence. And that Luther saw that, and Luther despised that, and Luther responded to that in the writing of the 95 Theses. So just trying to find objects like that that are evocative, that are special, that, that tell us something, and together to, to weave the narrative of the Christian faith. So it was an amazing, just a fun, fun, incredible project to carry out. And it's been a joy to share it in book and DVD form. Yeah, that's that's great. I want to encourage people to do that. And I just want to say, uh, Tim, I've appreciated your ministry. You've been an inspiration to a lot of us, uh, whether we're blogging or writing books or just doing ministry. You've been a really good, helpful well, source thank you. Appreciate that. for us. And I think you've modeled a kind of way of engaging online, both with your work, you know, and the way to think about some of these things, even hard issues in a way that's really helpful. So I want to encourage everybody. I can't imagine there's anybody listening that has not visited Chalice.com, but in case that person exists out there, do visit Chalice.com, make it a regular part of your media diet. And uh, Tim, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at @dandarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash danielmdarling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com and find out special pre-order bonuses if you order by August 18th. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters.